0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Just Friends. I'm your host, Mitchell Embry, and this week we are joined in the studio by our friend, the brilliant and charming Mr. Hans Probst. So it takes us about an hour and a half to get to how Hans and I actually met, uh, which was teaching at DOS High School. And the reason that is is because he is and has been one of my favorite people to talk to. When I was working at DOS. We would eat lunch in his classroom every day and we would talk about the world and how we felt like we fit in it and what was going on around us and what was happening in our classrooms and and having him there as an example and also as a support system was really valuable to me. So He's become one of those relationships that I really value, one of those people whose point of view I highly value. And it was awesome to get the chance to have him in the studio, to sit down and chat. It was a blast. I loved every second of it. So I just want to prepare you guys a little bit for how this podcast starts. Hans is one of those people that when you're talking to him, it's like interesting and engaging the entire time. So this episode literally starts the moment I press record as Hans is putting on his headphones and he's responding to that experience. And I thought it was really cool. So I decided to just let it start that way. And it really does set the tone for the rest of our conversation. Uh, which I think is a fantastic one, and I hope you guys will appreciate it as well. So real fast, if you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts or if you're listening on Google Podcast, take a quick second, give us a five-star rating, leave a quick review, let people out there know that you love Just Friends and they might like it too. We really appreciate it and it helps so much. And with that, I am now elated to have the privilege to present to you our friend, Mr. Hans Probst.
1: hearing my own voice has yeah. always been a probably a point of contention really you know, well huh. just growing up gay everybody well I mean starting in elementary school people will always say like oh you sound like a girl and this and that you're gay and I'm like no I'm not <laughs> so that was always a, a moment
0: I guess if you're ready we can jump right into this because that was a beautiful way to start the podcast. It really is. <laughs> uh, how old do you think you were when you realized that like, that, that you were gay or that like, you were maybe just feeling a way that was maybe different than everybody else felt?
1: I, I feel like I knew I was very different in seventh grade. Really? Yeah.
0: That makes perfect sense to me because puberty.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I was in a drama class and... Uh, You know, I always sat between my friends and this and that. And there was this dude on the other side of the classroom that I always just thought that he was interesting, right? And I didn't really understand it for a while and kind of started thinking like, huh, I think he's cute. Like, it it was a very interesting moment trying to come to terms with that Mm because my family growing up, we were very religious and this and that. So it, it took a long time for me to really... Accept that that's what was going on. But in later on in that year, I uh, approached my uh, sixth grade history teacher. Her name is Miss Allison. She was an open lesbian. She came to school one day in sixth grade and it's like, I had my baby. And we're all like, Excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) No, you didn't. Were you ever pregnant? I don't remember. (laughs) Right. And then the class kind of went through this like, oh, moment. But so clearly she was a person that I knew that was gay. And I thought, OK, the, she's got to be the person I tell because like I've got to work through this in some sort of fashion.
0: So let's uh, we'll definitely come back to that because I think that'll be a part of the story. But I don't want to jump too far into the the deep end too soon. So. How, have you and your family, have you lived in Louisville your entire life?
1: Yeah, I've been in Louisville ever since I was born. My dad was in the, uh, was in the Navy. He and my mom used to live in California. They used to live in New Zealand, and then they lived in D.C. But um, eventually my dad uh, became a part of the Navy Reserves, and um, they had me here in Louisville. Man, they ripped you off. Right, I know. My sister was born in New Zealand. This girl is eligible to have two passports. That's cool. Yeah.
0: That is, yeah, I guess you can because you can have dual citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. New Zealand would be a cool place to have a second citizenship.
1: Seriously. She um, has expressed some interest recently in actually going for her, um, like applying for the dual citizenship. I'm like, yes, like please sponsor me. That's <laughs> where I'm trying to retire is New Zealand. Dude, it, you can like retire in a Hobbit house or something like that. Exactly. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that would be
0: bomb. So where did you grow up in Louisville? where did you like where'd you go to elementary school and middle school and
1: stuff? So I went to St. Matthew's Elementary School. My um sister started at St. Matthew's when we lived out over in Hikes Point. And then when I was years old we moved out uh, to J-Town and um, apparently I wasn't going to start at um, St. Matthews but my mom got a job working there oh. and yeah so that's where I went to elementary school and then I went to no middle school for um, those years. I have so many friends who went to know. It was amazing. I imagine it wasn't be the
0: same time that you were there unfortunately but I have so many friends that went to know.
1: I was there in probably like the like 2006 Yeah, time
0: frame. That I guess. was right around the time we were graduating high school. We're all fucking <laughs> old, <laughs> but I don't want to gloss over this. Cause if we're going to start at the very beginning of your life, like the thing, a thing that I find super interesting about you as a person is that you started dancing when you were two years old.
1: Yeah. My sister, uh, was dancing as a, a studio that does like tap jazz and ballet. Um, she started dancing, and I was just fascinated because you know every year there's a big recital, and they always do a, a ballet that's inspired by a Disney movie. <laughs> Amazing, right? So I, I thought it was the coolest thing, and I begged my mom like I need to do this, like I've got to do this. And so as soon as I was what um, Miss Sharon, the studio owner, deemed to be like old enough, like if he's begging that much to get to get into dance uh i i started and here we are i was a munchkin in the wizard of oz
0: and how old were you then
1: i I think i was about two and a half
0: how articulate were you as a two-year-old that you were begging
1: to do something (laughs) my mom always tells the story that like by the time i was two years old i had full sentences coming out so that's amazing allegedly I (laughs) i don't know if it's true
0: I don't. So a lot of people who are listening to the podcast are parents of young children right now. Yeah. My sister is. A lot of my friends are, and it's really, really fascinating to think about like how, how quickly, those, these tiny little bundles of baby just become little people. Right. Like my nephew is just over a year old right now, and I can see his personality so clearly, and when I met him. From the time he was born until a year old, I mean, reality is I've, I saw him maybe 35 times in increments over that year. And every single time I saw him, something was different. And now all of a sudden there's this little clearly a person like making decisions, sometimes being mischievous it's really, really interesting.
1: I want to be one of those people that talks to my like toddler as if they're like a thirty-five-year-old human being, and just have this like super mature, like weirdly wise three-year-old. That's it's amazing, amazing.
0: because when they're fifty, they're like they're going to be awesome people. Oh I yeah. Imagine. So, I'm super interested in th- the fact that you started dancing it too for two reasons. One, because I love to dance, and just I imagine that that was a lot of fun. It was really athletic. You had to like be investing a lot of time, but also starting so young. I imagine you got
1: really, really good at this. I mean, I, I like to think that I was good. Um, you know, I, I danced from that young age up until like later middle school. I thought it was, you know, contributing to some like gayness, and I felt some shame about it. And I, I had to come to terms with that. And I eventually went back um, about my junior year of high school. I got back into dance. And then uh, I actually went to WKU for a year as a dance major before I realized, like, eh, if I don't get lucky, I'm not going to be the person who makes it big and gets into, mm-hmm. like, the American ballet. You know.
0: So did you so did you dance at No? Because I know No is like a pretty artsy type uh, middle school and they have like programs
1: like that. Now for no, I was more focused on theater. Okay, That's, I already had my like dance stuff and I was like, you know, I'm going to explore something different. Yeah.
0: That's equally as interesting to me. It was fun. Um, because that's also something that I think I would have really enjoyed if I had pursued it. I'm super dramatic and I feel like it could have been something I was good at. So were you, did you start feeling drawn to the theater and like into, into drama, uh, before middle school or was it just trying to find this transition in middle school that made that change happen
1: i think it was the middle school thing it, at no it's a very artsy school you know if if you're not doing visual arts you're doing theater if you're not doing theater you're going to be doing the dance program or something having to do with music everybody was involved in something artistic um and i think that that was really to the school's benefit and it just made me have something that was like all right like i'm i'm going to own this i'm going to be in the theater program let's go
0: That's super cool. There's something about the arts. You you said that you think it was to the school's benefit. and There is something about pursuing an artistic endeavor that results in perhaps a more thoughtful person or just a more... um, It's kind of like learning a different language. I feel like it lets you think in a little bit of a different way than somebody who doesn't have that skill is able to think, and that better prepares you to thinking abstractly about other concepts and applying that to to different things.
1: Yeah, let me break it down this way. So, like, you can have all the knowledge in the world, right? But if you're not going to do anything different or innovative with it, what are you actually going to be doing? So the arts gives you a place to explore some creativity that you can then apply that interesting knowledge to. So I, I think that's an interesting
0: way to go. That's a great way of putting it. That's a great way of putting it. But you know what's interesting is most of my friends who went to know are not artistic
1: <laughs> they're nerdy oh yeah they're all engineers see i'm a huge nerd just for education <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> yeah and so after no where did you end up i
1: went to seneca high school oh that's cool yeah so there was a point in my life obviously in in middle school like i was saying earlier I, that's where i came out and um my family was not so supportive at the beginning yeah um they wanted to keep a closer eye on me and Jackie, my sister, was already going to Seneca and they figured it would be easier for them to keep tabs on us both if we were together in the same spot. So instead of applying anywhere else, we sat down and was like, all right, you're applying to Seneca. Here you go.
0: Man, that's, that's a bummer. Would you have gone to Y-Pass if you could have and pursued theater?
1: Maybe. I was thinking I was going to more go to manual and do that whole experience mm-hmm. more on the academic side. I hate to hear that
0: your parents weren't super supportive or understanding at the beginning of, like, your realization that you were a gay man.
1: Oh, it was hell at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. It was like I was grounded for a long time uh, at the beginning and wasn't allowed to do very much, kind of separated from my friends. And um, there was a period of time where if – my parents kind of found out that I was talking to a guy or like interested in a guy and then I'd be grounded again and not able to like have any outside world kind of contact outside of school and it really didn't change until I was 16 so from the time what in seventh grade you're like what 11 12 so from when I was 12 years old until I was 16 that was just kind of a like weird endless cycle and um, my parents split up when I was 16 and my mom was moving uh, out to where she lives now. And she told me the day that we were moving, she says, okay, so here's the deal. I know you've been talking to a guy, but he's going to come over and help us move. And that was that. That's awesome. It was, it was pretty awesome. It was weirdly traumatic, but you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what do you think now as an adult, looking back and and trying to be empathetic towards your parents and the experience that they were having, what do you think they were experiencing?
1: I think it was just a fear, you know? Um, I got a lot of talks during that time that was like, well, you know, that, like, gay people, like, they're not successful. Like, the world does not want them here. Like, you know it's going to be hard for you. You're going to be lonely. You're never going to be able to get married. You're not going to be able to have kids, you're just going to have, like, I think it was a fear that I wasn't going to live up to what exactly they wanted for me, like, out of my life, you know?
0: I also heard in that statement, like, a love for you and, like, yeah. a fear that you would be persecuted and that you would have to face adversity because of what I'm assuming they maybe perceived, like, you, you having made a decision to be gay. Oh, yeah, for sure. Rather yeah. than, like, it just being a part of who you are as a
1: yeah, and they, uh, I think, had limited exposure to gay people in, in their life. That's, I mean, at that point in my life, I had had limited exposure to gay people. The only two gay people that I knew of were two teachers that I'd had. Mm-hmm.
0: That's an interesting story. I had, my mom has a, a cousin who's a lesbian. In my whole life, um, she was uh, partnered with her wife, um, her wife now, they're married now, and... uh when I was young, I didn't know if they were sisters who just lived together, and no one ever told me that they were a lesbian couple. I figured it out in high school
1: All right it's so confusing for kids like we we don't we don't see them because we want to hide them yeah and that's that's why kids are pretty intolerant without even an understanding that they're intolerant yeah you know that's that's why we get. Uh, so many children in high school saying things like, oh, that's gay. Well, just because they don't understand why that's a problem. Right. And, you know, just from my
0: experience, honestly, like talking about like not having a lot of experience with gay people. I guess I did have a lot of experience with them. We would go like they had a boathouse. We would spend some weekends there in the summertime. But I never knew what their relationship was. Um, but I really I, I can relate to how confused you might have been because you just did not have a representation of what your life would now look like that you could look to for inspiration for how to move forward. So I, it's awesome that you were able to seek out teachers to help you with that. Yeah. Do you think that was a big part of why you chose to become a teacher?
1: Oh, it's definitely a huge part of why I became a teacher. Um, And at Uh, DOS now, I run the Gay Straight Trans Alliance and I I always reiterate to them, it's just very important that you all understand there are role models out there. You can do anything you want to. You might have to work a little bit harder than your hetero counterparts to find those role models, but don't let anyone think that you're going to be less than, just because you don't have that uh, impact right there and I like to say that like, you know, I'm a I'm an example of a successful gay man living out here that kinda can show not only like my gay kids, but also my straight kids that like, hey, we're here too. We're we're people.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I've seen some of the work you've done with students and it's all they're they're freaking they're fantastic students, man. Some of like uh, my favorite kids that I ever had in class turned out to be some of the kids that you had at GSTA, which was really awesome.
1: I, I feel like you know having to go through that struggle of figuring out who you are, you're just that much more like, all right, I'm a go-getter. I'm going to make it happen. So often,
0: and I imagine you experience this too, when you're interacting with a young person, they're just being the person that someone else has told them that they are. There's living out this expectation of them and they're not really thinking about how they feel or what they think or what seems to be right or wrong to them but they can and sometimes when you challenge them they do and they do a really impressive job of it but you had no choice you had to evaluate who you were as a person and so imagine through that process there was just so much growth how do you feel like do you feel like it gave you a leg up on some of the other people around you who didn't have to have those experiences?
1: I don't know if it's necessarily a leg up, but what I've what I've got is a very strong attention to who I am and what my principles are. Not everybody truly understands like why they believe things. And I don't know. I've had to I've had to give a lot of thought to that. I've also Kind of develop this like steadfastness, and when I believe that something is wrong, I'm going to speak up about it, and I'm going to not budge in my opinion. So, like any sort of like sexism, heterosexism, racism, I, I'm I'm just out there trying to be an ally.
0: It does make sense because you can relate to that having to experience that adversity of not being accepted by by the people around you.
1: Yeah, I might not understand their specific uh, experiences, but I can relate to it. I, at least I can empathize with it. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be, in
0: some places, the lack of empathy. And I think it's really coming from the ability to be very, to be very anonymous on social media. It 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 makes it it's so much easier to communicate in a way that just does not take the other person's experience into consideration at all. Yeah. And so I think being really good at empathizing is a skill that some people don't have and they definitely there are definitely consequences to not being able to see other people's perspective when you're living in a community with a bunch of other people.
1: Yeah, I I was talking to one of my best friends the other day um she was mentioning like you know like I am really, really uncomfortable with having to, like, remember people's like, pronouns. And, like, I feel like I'm always going to mess up when I'm around, like, people who identify as a diff- different gender, or, like, whether they're trans or fluid or anything. And she she has this fear that she doesn't want to, like, mess up, but she also kind of doesn't relate to their experiences. And I'm like, well, like, how many trans people do you know? And she's she says, well, I've only ever met one, and I'm not even, like— like truly friends with them it's like let's you just kind of haven't understood their experience yet it's okay to be worried and it's okay to m- mess up like nobody's gonna come at you and be like oh, you got my pronouns wrong the second time you've ever met me but you know that's right it's all about intention for sure and that's
0: something that's really hard to to convey when you're not there in person sure. like when you're sitting across from somebody if they say something that knee-jerk reaction offends you but then you can tell that they actually are doing their best to try to relate to you and they just made a small mistake then like you're kind of a butthole if you are mean to them about it
1: oh yeah i learned this verbiage from another podcast um a few years ago that's like instead of calling people out, why don't you call them in? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds so simple, but it's like, you don't have to feel like everything's an attack. You can kind of like, I mean, you should still like call out that behavior, but in a way that's like, Hey, I don't really know what you meant by that, but that can be perceived as offensive to somebody. Mm-hmm. So like, here's what I would do instead. Like, there you go. And you just leave it at that.
0: And that's a perspective that I think people need to hear because a lot of times, what you're interacting with on social pe- media are people who are using that platform, but they don't—they haven't necessarily spent a lot of time thinking about the things that they're saying and the way that they're treating people.
1: Oh yeah, that's uh, I. So I play this game. It's called RuneScape. I've been playing it for over 15 years, right? Um, so uh, yesterday in my clan, some dude decided that he was going to call somebody else a pussy. And I'm like, whoa hang on, what do you mean by that? And he's like, oh, well, that they're not doing well at something. It's like, okay, so why do you equate, well, why do you equate like a woman's reproductive part with being bad? Think about it. I don't need you to answer, but just think about it. Right. So,
0: you know. And then let's be friends. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And let's just move on.
0: Yeah it's It's sometimes hard to be challenged. sometimes people aren't used to being challenged, and sometimes people never challenge themselves right. and then they don't surround themselves with people who challenge them and then they end up thinking the same wrong thing for a really long time
1: it's So deeply ingrained yeah, yeah. and well, I'm
0: also guilty of that
1: though I mean that's what happened with my mom and my dad, right? yeah, so here we are. I just happened to be a very big challenge. <laughs>
0: Oh gosh! But so let's go back to Seneca. How did you? Were you happy at Seneca though? Do you feel like you were able to become the person? You f- it was like good time for you.
1: Oh yeah, I loved my time at Seneca. Um, I I still did some theater there, not a whole bunch, but you know some. Um, and I was like a, a class officer. I was our class publicist which is definitely a made up role um <laughs> i was in charge of putting everything on facebook or uh, myspace like hey we're having this fundraiser and like oh come to come to powder puff football and buy your t-shirts yeah that might be a made up role
0: but it seems like probably the most influential of all class officer
1: roles it was pretty great i, I definitely got high on the power
0: i bet because <laughs> when i think about my class president I mean, I had her on the podcast. She's an awesome person. She was really interesting. But I've really had no way of seeing anything that she was doing that related to class
1: office. I yeah. wasn't in that. It's a lot of weird behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. Um, like we met every month with our principal and our counselors and like kind of went over like what were the goings on at, at Seneca High School. It was It was fun. Yeah. But you
0: were like the face of all of it because of the social media presence.
1: So Exactly. That's very cool. <laughs>
0: and I also noticed or I've seen pictures of you like you were super like school spirit was really important to you,
1: right? Oh, it was. I, I mean, one of my favorite um, homecoming weeks, I, I dressed up like the Flash and was like, I'm going to be ridiculous. I'm going to wear a pair of <laughs> underwear over a pair of tights to school and see what happens. Nobody said anything to me, (laughs) but here
0: we go. That is amazing, and I remember there being a ton of school spirit when I was in high school also. Um, I remember there being a homecoming week where we all dressed up as our favorite characters from movies or something like that, and my friend Jake dressed up like Nacho Libre. I mean, like, (laughs) it was intense, and he had this whole outfit, and it had, like, a, a skin shirt yeah but the the <laughs> it really came alive when he took off that skin shirt and had <laughs> his like hairy chest and his
1: stupid big hair. That's hilarious.
0: Where did that go, man?
1: You know, I, a lot of people uh, like to criticize our kids for not being really connected to like the homecoming week. but why would you be connected to homecoming week when you don't feel connected to your school? Yeah. You know, um this gets a lot into um we have had such like a deficit perspective about DOS High School, right? There, um, people always love to say, "Oh, well, the kids are very challenged. They've got, well, they're poor or they're mostly students of color, so like they come to school with all this trauma." But like, let's look at this from an asset perspective, right? Like, what do, what what do those experiences make them bring to the table? Well, they're bringing a hell of a lot more empathy. They are bringing kind of this like know-how kind of I'm going to get by by doing whatever I can possibly do um, kind of perspective. And I don't think that we fully tapped into that yet. Um, Obviously, it's tough and there are there are challenges that come with that. So, like, there are some things that need to be worked through. But I think as a as a really a school district, as a nation, honestly, we need to figure out how to tap into what our kids have that could really help us in the long
0: run. Mm-hmm. I can agree with that and appreciate that, but I also worry. I do know that adversity, um, when responded to correctly, makes a more capable and more interesting person. So with the amount of adversity that our kids are experiencing, if they can learn how to to deal with it in a way that, is positive and results in positive outcomes for them, they will grow into more interesting and more capable people than their peers who never had those experiences. But how many kids oh, never n- yeah, never get the chance to learn those skills. Like yeah. it keeps it used to keep me up at night. I would lay in, in bed at night thinking about that.
1: Yeah. There I mean it's something that well, one like you as a person you can't like say like I've got to save every kid you yeah. know that's that's not something that we can do because um, it will keep you up at night but as long as we're working to like try to save as many as we can and I'm not saying save them like we're coming in like high and mighty like oh I'm going to be the one person in this kid's life that's going to change everything it's what can I do to like get them on board what can I do that's gonna like help them at least navigate through their trauma while they're here um and come out better yeah by the end i think that right there
0: is the exact mindset you have to have about most things like how can i leave this better than i found it yeah so did you decide you had a love for education when you were in high school at seneca or was that something that started before
1: So at Seneca, I had one teacher, my chemistry teacher, shout out to Mr. Garrity. Mr. Garrity. Yeah, if you're there. Um, He was the first person that ever told me that I'd make a good teacher. Um, However, when I left uh, Seneca and went for my first year at WKU, I started as a photojournalism major. And then I was like, no, I'm going to pursue dance. Let's go for this. And then I was like, Ugh, I don't want to teach five-year-olds how to do little tap dances. So <laughs> what I'm going to do is move into like, oh, like, let's get an English degree. And that ended up transforming into, okay, I'm going back to UofL. They have a better education program. I'm going to I'm gonna be a teacher.
0: When you were at WKU, what, what, what made you... Decide that that was the place you wanted to go in the first place. Did they have a great photojournalism program? I guess. Oh yeah,
1: and in that time of my life, I was very, very big into America's Next Top Model, and I thought <laughs> that I was going to be the next Nigel Barker. Granted, photojournalism doesn't have much to do with fashion photography. I mean, it's photography skills, right? So I figured, okay, this is great. Like, i one, I can get out of town. I can ditch my family. <laughs> To, I can get a good education.
0: I have a lot of friends who went to WKU, and I think their motivations for going there was they were like, "We can party a lot, and <laughs> our parents will be in Louisville."
1: Right. <laughs> um, that was definitely in my mind at, yeah. at that point. um But honestly, like I knew that I wanted to get out of of town for college. I knew that from a pretty young age. You know, going through uh, what I went through as a kid, but. Eventually, like you know, I I took my year out there and was like, "I, I would, I should, I would rather come home."
0: What was it like being a gay man in Bowling Green?
1: Yeah, it was pretty easy. Really? Um, Yeah, we had a big like group of friends that like most of us were queer in some sort of aspect or allies in some sort of aspect, and. You know, we had a, we had a real good time. We went to down to Nashville several times to go. Like they had college nights at play where you could get in, and that was lots of debauchery for, for no reason. But well, it's we college. Oh yeah, that's well, like
0: the that's like what college is. It's like the main reason. <laughs> oh goodness! So then you went back to U of L, and you really started to pursue education.
1: Yeah, it kind of became this thing that I was like, you know. I've had a lot of influential teachers. I, I mean, I can't even count on my fingers how many teachers really made a, a big impact on my life. And um, I really felt like, hey, it, it's time to give it back. Um, that's the sixth grade teacher that I mentioned earlier, Miss um, Ellison. She was like such a, a rock for me when I was so young and like didn't feel like I can go to anybody else. Like she was right there. And then Miss Jankowski, my um, ninth grade English teacher, she was the first person who ever like taught me really like how to find the theme in a piece of literature and then like apply it to something. Holy crap, that was magic! And uh, clearly, as I'm an English teacher sitting here right now, I, she obviously made some sort of difference. Mm-hmm. Do you feel
0: like that is where your love for literature started? I think so. Because when I think about you, I can't think about you in without imagining you in a room full of books.
1: <laughs> yeah, Ms. Jankowski definitely opened the door. I ended up having her again in my junior year for AP Lang and then for your book and all this stuff. And I, I think that seeing somebody unlock these doors for me, like telling me like, you know, literature is is this fun experience that like you can you can really get something out of it. It's not necessarily like oh, you're just reading a book for fun. It's like you're reading a book, one, for fun, and then two, to learn some lessons and like look at other people's experiences. I think that's the biggest part. So you, get to, you get to see what life is like on the other side.
0: Yeah, you can feel what somebody else might be feeling when they're in a situation. Yeah, And also, how powerful is language?
1: Is there any tool in the human arsenal that's more powerful than language? I mean, at at the root of what we're doing even right now, it's it's communication, it's yeah. showing people a different story. So like, how else could we do that without being able to construct our language?
0: I, I talk about this book in every fucking podcast, people are gonna hate me, but it's Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Okay. Basically the theme of the book is, so many of the challenges that we face as a nation are a result of our inability to empathize with one another and our ineffectiveness at communicating our experiences to one another in a way that we can relate to. So the the amount of impact you can have as an English teacher by giving kids the tools to even think about themselves effectively
1: is so powerful. I would hope so. That's I, and I always say to my kids before they leave my class, uh, I've said it at least ten times to them. It's like when you get out of high school, the only way you're going to learn is by reading. So like, at least give it a little bit of an investment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying just by like reading like some sort of piece of literature. I mean, like we're reading the news on our phones. We are reading articles for or like just to gain information. We're reading. Um, journal articles so we can further our, our knowledge and our chosen fields, you know? It's, it's the way that you can process what's happening around you and mm-hmm. what the world really is.
0: I saw something on Facebook the other day. I think it was the post of a teacher we used to teach with, but I can't exactly remember. But it said that something like 45% of all high school graduates never read another book again for the rest of their life. And then something like 33% of college graduates never read another book again for the rest of their life.
1: You know, like reading an entire book is not really for everybody. Mm -hmm. But like, I mean, I can't tell you how many books I started this summer and just decided not to finish because I didn't really like love it. But there are those books that I found that I've I've finished. Um, And sometimes like with me, uh, I'll pick up a book read some, sit it over, like let it digest, like come back to it in a couple months, keep reading. That's what I'm doing right now with The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. I've made it like three quarters of the way through, still got some more stuff to digest, you know. you That's definitely one that you have to think about. But. Is that what you find
0: yourself reading most often? Is, is, is dense, like thoughtful, like I guess – um, informative literature or are you, do you still read for like, like seriously read for fun?
1: I I do. I I like to read, um, mostly like comedic memoirs. Um, if you have ever heard of, uh, David Sedaris, he's like so sardonic in the best way possible. And it's, it's almost absurd by like how dark his worldview is. I just think it's great. It's, um, I, I, I can, I can devour a book like that, but, um, I mean, in the same way that, like, The Great Gatsby, like that that kind of genre doesn't really do it for me as much. Mm
0: -hmm. I used to read a ton of fantasy. Uh, I would get and also sci fi novels when I was younger. That's what I would read tons of that stuff. Anything I get my hands on, basically. And some of it sucked, but then I was able to like I discovered Ursula K. Le Guin by reading like that type of stuff. And then I stumbled upon, um, Robert Jordan's, A Wheel of Time. And that was like a million pages of just craziness and, and this just epic journey across like time and, and space with these crazy magician people who's, I mean, like the books when I have all 12 of them stacked up are almost as tall as I am because they're also <laughs> <a> fucking thick, <laughs> but, uh. I don't read like that anymore. Yeah. Almost never.
1: It's hard to find the time, really. that's I I see all these posts about um, teachers, particularly English teachers, you are like, oh, here's my summer reading list. This is my 40th book that I've read this month. And I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Do you do anything else? Yeah. Um, I, I barely had time to finish three books this summer and like... I barely had time to finish them, like like I just said. I'm still reading the New Jim Crow, and <laughs> summer's over for me. So here we are.
0: Oh gosh, so that's that. So let's talk. I would be really interested to hear about like what your experience has been with teaching in COVID, because I mean we haven't really talked about COVID, but that is definitely the main narrative. Well, simultaneously, there are two very very important narratives that are taking place um but that's kind of the one uh that i think impacts the most people all at once yeah. how has your experience with teaching in covid been
1: i mean first and foremost it's been very weird i love going to school every day and seeing the kids you know it it was nice to be like oh i get to work from home like what's what's that like as a teacher it's never something that i thought was going to be something that was in my view, right Mm -hmm. so not getting to see the kids is weird and when it was sprung on us at first we kind of only had three weeks to prepare we didn't really understand what those like what our expectations were going to be so those three weeks were essentially squandered um and the way that it worked at first was not it was just not ideal I felt like I was just assigning work just to say, like, here's here's something, we're still in school, right? Um, this second round that starts up later in August is going to be a little different in the aspect that, like, yeah, we're still, like, assigning work. But um, our district is asking us to do synchronous work with the kids, too. So log on to Google Meet. Let's have a, a class session at least twice a week so we can work through some things together so you can receive that direct instruction. And so I can just see your face, you know. I'm excited about it. I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Uh, But it's going to take a lot of an adjustment for all of us, student and teacher.
0: I can't even imagine. When I think about teaching, I I was teaching math. So a lot of times I felt like I was teaching, like, relationship building and, like, teach healthy decision making. It's like I remember one time... I, uh, knocked this huge vase off of my desk and it shattered on the ground and all the kids looked at me like, Oh my God, he's going to be so mad. And I was just like, oops, (laughs) you know, and kind of smiled. And then, you know, like all like the tension in the room immediately dissipated. And I was like thinking to myself, how can you have those moments? How can you have those interactions when everything's happening on a screen
1: I I think it's going to be still pretty inauthentic in a way. I, I, I know that we're going to at least be able to do some things. And a lot of my first week that I've planned so far is just like, okay, what do you all expect out of this whole experience? What do you want from me from this experience? Also, tell me something about you. If you would like to record a video with your face in it, like, please just show me who you are. Because, I mean teaching online to a bunch of kids that I knew because we got interrupted in the middle of a year, that, that's easier. But now teaching a bunch of kids that I don't i don't know who they are, that's going to be hard because um, I don't know how they're going to react to my feedback. I don't know if they're uh, like where their skills lie or what they need to improve upon yet. I, I feel like it's going to take a lot of, of effort on both of our ends, trying to really Get to know one another before we can even get to the like the content, but like you're saying, a lot of teaching is not this content it's it's soft skills. It's like how do you navigate the world around you? What do you do in situations where your vase breaks? you know mm-hmm. um, I think that maybe we'll at least get like little tastes of that within our like our Google meets, but i'm I'm just hoping that we can get back in as soon as possible.
0: Mm-hmm. But what do you do? I mean, we've since 1918, we've not seen a situation where there's a legitimate pandemic. Now, and we've gotten so lucky with this one because, I mean, any loss of life is tragic. And I don't want to see anyone have to suffer because of a virus. But this could have been so much worse than it turned out to be yeah and in a lot of ways we've done a crappy job of dealing with COVID <laughs>
1: like... I really have. I, have I read something last night that like there are projections now that COVID is going to be the third leading cause of death this entire year it's horrifying and um, I mean it's not it's not the pandemic everybody thought we were gonna have it's not zombies right Thank goodness yeah
0: because I would have been screwed
1: <laughs> yeah I would have been gone long ago <laughs> uh, sometime in the middle of March would have been my end so <laughs> here we are
0: yeah we, we're lucky that it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been but still it's been really bad it's I think in some ways we've gotten so used to modern medicine and we feel so comfortable that we ignore a lot of really important things that could seriously, seriously impact us. I mean, how close did we come to like grocery stores shutting down oh my
1: and stuff like that? That's what I was really scared right. about. I, I remember one of our coworkers was talking about like, OK, well, we're going to go to Costco this weekend and do a big like COVID prepping trip. This was back in January, yeah, and I was like, "Okay, yeah. <laughs> drama," <laughs> but no, I, I mean, it turned out to be something that kind of made sense. Like yeah, I, and I was overbuying certain things. Like, I have I can't even tell you how many pounds of chicken breasts I have in my freezer for <laughs> just in case. And that was all acquired like during the month of March, right? Yeah, um, it, it definitely impacted me in this way that just kind of gave me this like visceral like fear, um. Something that I just really didn't understand how to, like, how to cope with at that moment. And I I really am thankful that, like, at least, like, my relationships with people, like, my, uh, like, just people were able to talk me down. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: See, I feel like my natural reaction to something like this is to just be like, Pleh. it's yeah. not that big of a deal because... On the other end of that, it's like, okay, well then how how much do I do need to respond? And if I don't know, then I am gonna I'm gonna overdo it. So like I really think only it's been only been in the past like month or so that I've really started to like think about like the serious ramifications of COVID. And so, like, I think Sarah and I are gonna buy like some freeze dried food, and like <laughs> keep it in the basement, and like get a water purification system that we can put on the house or something like that, just so like, just in case shit does hit the fan, we haven't we have a some safety net because otherwise it's like HelloFresh only lasts us three days.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that like what you're saying here with like the like your initial reaction of being like, eh, that's people are really not wanting to um, accept what's going on. It's kind of, it's one of those like fear responses, right? What flight fright or um, freeze. Yeah. Um, So I understand why people want to just kind of deny, shake it off and kind of think, Oh, well I I can go to the bar this one time. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And just, want to continue living in the world that we're in. They're, they're frozen in time, right? Um, whereas mine was just fright. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I, you know, But I did, uh, I mean, I started working from home in February, like not visiting any places at all. And then from February through until like things started opening back up in maybe like early June, late May, I didn't really do anything,
1: at all. Same here. I I mean, since then I've been to restaurants a few times, and not since um, uh, Andy Bashir's said like, "Hey, let's go down to twenty five percent." I was like, "All right, I will. I will not go to restaurants. I'll mm-hmm. still order on Doordash though."
0: I was doing that the, mostly the whole time. Yeah. Oh yeah, spending way too much money. <laughs>
1: uh, but
0: so, like I said though, I was cooped up from February until, like, late May. And it definitely had an impact on my mental state.
1: Oh, yeah. Did you experience that? Most definitely. My apartment right now, it's essentially a cave. <laughs> my uh, windows are pretty <laughs> high up. and I mean, they're very large windows, but, like, I've got really tall ceilings in this building. And so I, I felt like I was in this cave, and every time I'd go outside, it's like, uh, the sun, what's <laughs> this? Um... And so just kind of being cooped up there on my own, just doing my, doing my own little thing, playing on RuneScape, and then seeing, like, oh, there's, there's a world out here, but I'm not really able to engage with it. It, it was just frustrating, you know?
0: I can relate to that so much. I, early on in quarantine, Sarah and I built a bonfire in our backyard, and we were drinking some alcohol. And then I got on a Snapchat call with some of my buddies and we were, they were all just fucking sitting at their houses Mm -hmm. doing the same thing as me. And I'm like, why are you all not here with me right now? Like, We could be hanging out if it weren't for this crazy, crazy virus. Um, But I can definitely relate to like feeling cooped up and then looking at the outside world and, and thinking like, oh, I haven't been outside in, like, two days. Like, what is going on?
1: (laughs) Right. I was trying to make a really conscious effort toward the beginning. It's like, all right, I'm going to get out and I'm going to walk around all these neighborhoods, like, wave at all the people who have hashtag Team Kentucky on their uh, front porch or Mm -hmm. whatever. and
0: The green lights and stuff? Oh,
1: yeah. It was great. Now I have the... um, light bulbs that you can tell Alexa to like change the color and everything. So like before the nighttime I'd tell Alexa, All right, change the living room to green, let's go. Like people can see it from from across the way and the other apartments. So here we are. But it's not one of those things where like it got old, but it got to the point where it like became so cumbersome, and you're like just reminded of all of these like bad things going on, and you kind of need a break. That's um that phenomenon that's going on that psychologists are talking about right now is doom scrolling, where in this kind of nerve wracking moment in our in our lives, we've started doing this doom scrolling, like looking at like negative story after negative story after negative story because we want to stay informed but we're overwhelmed with everything that's so negative trying to trying to have our survival instincts kick in in that way.
0: That's really interesting. I'd never heard of that term doom scrolling, but I'm very familiar with like the concept that a lot of the social media algorithms have identified that people will interact and engage with things that make them angry yeah or things that make them frightened. Um, so that almost seems like you're getting a double dose, like the algorithms are already giving you stuff that's going to potentially enrage you so that you'll engage. And then you're actively seeking out information about what's going on around the world so that you can stay well informed. And it's highly negative.
1: Oh, gosh, I've had to set, um, what is it? Screen time on, on my phone. That's like, all right, you've gotten to your two hours of Facebook that is allotted, Do you really want to have another hour on it or are you ready to to finish? Yeah. Uh,
0: I have also seen a lot of people respond to COVID though in a really positive way. My buddy Ben, um, like at first it was really challenging for him, but now he's like working out in his house. He bought like a Peloton bike. Actually, I think he bought a rowing machine and he's really been hitting it. I do look forward to a day when, you know, like big parties are way more available to take place. But I don't expect that things are ever going to fully go back to, like, the way they were before this happened. Yeah,
1: the quote-unquote normal.
0: Well, if it does, it doesn't that seem like that would be irresponsible to do now that we're aware that this could happen?
1: Yeah. You know what I mean? We're going to be the old people that are kind of like the Depression-era grandparents. that Like, they hoarded food and this and that, and we're going to be the ones that are like you're going to a party are there more than 10 people there i don't think i would go (laughs) just in case
0: take your mask please (laughs) yeah i don't i I think masks will be a, a a much more common thing from this point on i hope so yeah it might not be that everybody's wearing them but i hope that people you know kind of in the same way that they do in japan like if you have symptoms of some type of illness be respectful and wear a mask protect other people from you that kind of thing.
1: See, I'm I'm down to do that. That's a, that's something I've never done before. But um, I had a cold like a couple of months ago, and I, I was like, Oh God, here it is. But um, it it wasn't. So I, I know that I was wearing a mask anyway because of COVID. But I feel like if that were to happen five years from down the road, I'm going to be wearing a mask just because I want to make sure that whatever it is, I'm not hurting somebody else. Yeah, know that's a big point of contention right now. Um, mask wearing, yeah, but I mean, I relate to those people
0: who don't like being told by some other person yeah. that you have to do something,
1: especially when it's something that's like it's it's definitely an adjustment. It's not you know it's there the entire time, yeah, right. But I think that if my sister can do it or if your wife can do it for an entire shift and wear multiple layers of them plus a face shield, us other forms of PPE I, if they can do it to save our lives then I can do it to keep them protected and other people around me that's why I do wear a mask
0: every time I am indoors because I've been to a restaurant a couple of times like I'll wear it to the table take it off and eat put it back on not everybody's doing that I don't really care what other people are doing I can't control other people I can only control me but I don't I also don't like curfew. I don't like it because it just makes me just a little bit like, ooh, well, where are we going to go next with it? Yeah. What are you going to tell me that we have to do next? And and I'm a pretty big fan of our governor right now, to be perfectly honest. But the moment he starts to, to put stipulations on the way that I'm engaging in my life that seem unfair to me, I'm not there yet but other people are. And so I can kind of understand how they feel about that.
1: So as an English teacher, I will say, be wary of the slippery slope fallacy, right? The the whole like, what's next kind of deal. Like we're doing this now, like sure it feels like a next step could come, but like, is the next step gonna be that bad? It's not like we're like telling you you have to stay in your house at all times. Right, I hope not. We're not um, how Italy was back in in March, right? Um, If that happened in America, I think we would we would have craziness going on here but hopefully we just never get to that point right yeah i hope not i hope we get a vaccine
0: sometime early next year and we don't see anything like this again for the rest of our lives i mean that would be ideal
1: well thankfully those trials are really promising yeah and apparently people who've had covid um like at least while the antibodies are still in their system they can donate plasma and that can become a therapy for people mm-hmm. who are who have covid yep um the things that we're finding out that are actually viable are pretty good. Yeah.
0: This is another thing that I think about, and I wonder if you've thought about it. How do you think this is going to impact kids? Because it's going to impact kids, and I think younger kids especially, more than anybody else.
1: I think uh, at least for our high school level kids, like the kids that I'm going to be interacting with every day, I think that they'll share the same kind of fears that we do. You know, they're, they're old enough to really process things like that. Um, however, the younger ones, I'm, I'm pretty concerned that like kids in the like later elementary to like middle school level are just kind of maybe going to have that trauma that carries over, you know, um, what it's going to manifest itself as that your guess is as good as mine, you know, but mm-hmm. I'm just hoping that we can at least overcome this a little a little more quickly. You know, everybody wants, to, wants it to be done now, now, now. Like, as soon as this is over,
0: the better. Yeah, that's true. And I think as soon as we have a vaccine, then it transitions to becoming something. I mean, we ha- we're going to have to live with this for the rest of our lives. for, for From now on, this is going to be a thing that people get. It's going to be a thing that people die from. But once we have the tools to effectively combat it as, as well as we can and as well as we do other things, that's, I think, when things will come back to normal but I worry about my friends who have young kids. Like I worry about my nephew. Um, I went over and saw him and my sister the other day and I hadn't seen him for probably a couple of weeks. And he was fascinated by me because I was another person and he hadn't seen another person in maybe days. Um, And he's still really super young now. So that's not really uncommon, common for a one or two year old, but for like five, six, seven-year-olds who would normally be in school every day with their peers and knowing how important that is to the development of children and knowing they're not getting that, I wonder, I just worry about that.
1: I do too. That's one of those, you know, that's what our our government has been arguing is that this is, like, a, a great thing for kids to be able to do. Like, we, we can't take it away from them. I'm like, all right, let's pick the lesser of two evils. Mm-hmm. Like, death versus some trauma. Like, Mm, let's pick the trauma yeah but um i mean obviously neither is our is our a great option you know yeah
0: no we definitely
1: And and you know gosh i mean it's
0: all so complicated anyway because going to school causes trauma at the same time oh, yeah. it's, it's both sides of this this crazy coin human beings are so complicated already i wonder this though and you might be able to give me an idea of this how many kids are just not coming back to school
1: Oh, I don't know I can't tell you how many people that um, are my peers as educators who have taken this route of now they're going to be doing like homeschool tutoring uh, one of my good friends who was in my cohort um, for my master's degree she is now opening this kind of like quote unquote Academy situation it's gonna be socially distanced she's gonna have ten kids um, but She's charging their parents to like tutor them while they're officially registered as homeschooled students. Um, and she is making a buttload of money doing this. I'm thinking, hmm, if only I didn't like love my, my yeah. job.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, that makes a lot of sense from the perspective of an educator, but it kind of depends on, on what your goals are. Are yeah. your goals to try to help? the helpless the people who have no one else who's advocating for them right you can't do that by reaching out to your friends who are able to pay you three hundred dollars a week to tutor their children you know what i mean like right those kids it's not the same thing
1: those kids are gonna be fine yeah you know um granted like i'm not trying to be a savior or anything but i feel like i'm having a, a better impact somehow mm-hmm.
0: and maybe you do this now Gain all the wisdom that comes from these experiences and then you can charge five hundred dollars a week in like 20 years
1: (laughs) Yeah, i'm not saying it's something I would never do so let's like anybody out there. who's listening I might be open to that
0: (laughs) (laughs) And more power to the people who are doing it exactly
1: that's it's nothing to knock somebody for I think that You know if it makes sense for you and if it makes sense for your family to do something like that That's that's great um, and honestly, if I was a parent and I could afford it, I wouldn't want my kid going to school with a thousand kids. Ten sounds a lot better right mm-hmm. now, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should be able to charge like four hundred or six hundred dollars a week, six or seven, with your master's degree, because you got all kinds of fancy school now. So you could be like,
1: I don't know, a super specialist. Um, let's see. I, I think that of my friends, uh, the highest I've seen is about four hundred dollars. And they've got like their rank one and all that. Really, like, I, I think on average people are people are going for about like two hundred bucks. You know, that's reasonable
0: with ten kids.
1: That's eight thousand dollars a month. That's a
0: that's a damn good wage.
1: Hell yeah! That, I mean, you don't even have to make an Amazon wish list anymore. <laughs> you just go for it. Buy <laughs> buy your own stuff. Heck yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I've bought so much stuff off Amazon since COVID started. It's ridiculous. I went through this like really big like online shopping phase and I I was like, you know what? Screw this. I can't cannot continue to do the Amazon shopping. I gotta save more
0: money. It's a coping mechanism. It's that uh it's that retail therapy. The thing my sister was most sad about during like the the very beginning situation in COVID was that Ross and Marshalls were shut down. (laughs) She was so (laughs) upset.
1: (laughs) So my best friend. Um, we have this like long running story that has like essentially become a legend now. Like it, it, I won't say it never happened, but (laughs) here we are. So picture this, we're in a TJ Maxx having like, you know, a little shopping trip and you know, she's going to try on some clothes and she's been a little bubbly in the guts during the day. Mm. She may or may not have called me back to bring her a change of underwear because she pooped in a dressing room at TJ Maxx, I will never tell whether it did or did not happen.
0: Definitely didn't happen.
1: <laughs> but here we are. I've been making fun of her so much, like I can't believe you can't go to TJ Maxx. I'm like, I mean, not. They would let me, not that they would let you in anyway. But... So did you
0: have to buy her a pair of underwear? <laughs> the story changes every time it's told. Okay. <laughs>
1: oh, oh gosh,
0: that's hilarious. So back to your master's degree. After that amazing poop story, nothing's better than a poop story, by the way, <laughs> oh, or a yeah. fart story. They're poop the most will always be funny, yeah. no matter how old you are. What? It, what is? So you just get your master's degree? I just saw it. You just got it recently, right? Yeah. Congratulations.
1: So, thank you. I, I finished it in May, um, and I actually got to pick up my uh, diploma. I was literally the only person, aside from two people working in this giant ballroom at U <laughs> I walked in, was like is are, am I allowed to be in here did this did this start already but um so I picked up my diploma yeah my masters is a masters in education with a focus in secondary education in teacher leadership <laughs> Um, But it even has another crazy title. It's um, Competency, Awareness, and Responsiveness to Diverse Students. So essentially what it entailed was teacher leadership classes, like learning how to be a better coach for my peers, learning how to be better um, within my own instructional practices, and then share that knowledge. But then I also earned a diversity literacy certificate, um, which was um, really focused on um, learning a lot about different types of, um, intersectional diversity. Like I took a class on African-American English. I took a class on, um, the body and popular media. I even took a class about language and gender from a linguistics perspective. So it's pretty interesting.
0: That sounds fascinating to me. Like how does linguistics differ depending upon gender?
1: oh a lot um and especially in other languages um i mean we have honorifics in english but in other languages there are are specific honorifics that you would use for different people based on what your gender is and then their gender um and over time some of these have morphed into being like viewed in certain ways like if you're using certain honorifics because you're of this gender like you look or are perceived to be a little bit less than or there are ads that are targeted specific people that use the different language that um kind of have stereotypical views of themselves. But um I mean the way that we talk about um professions like actor versus actress, right? So like an actress is kind of perceived to be less than or like they're they're still getting paid less than, right? So if we can move to be more I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that we have to be gender neutral with everything that we do, but um, there are some implications there that, like, why do we say stewardess instead of flight attendant, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: See, I don't know how, and you and I might have different feelings about this. I definitely can agree that there should be less differences between the way that we view and interact with people dependent upon both their biological sex and their gender. Because when I say something like the majority of women tend to be more nurturing than the majority of men, that does not negate the fact that I know that there are women that could beat my ass with no challenge at all. (laughs) So like, in some ways it's beneficial to talk about um specifically the different biological sexes with in general's yeah in in generalized ways but it's not correct to to use those assumptions when you're interacting with individuals, because you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're treating this lovely young lady like she's this delicate little flower and she knows new jujitsu and she's going to snap your neck if you call her babe one more time.
1: <laughs> exactly. You're hitting the nail on the head there. That's, I mean, even in the field of studying diversity, you have to make generalizations about experiences of groups of people, but you have to recognize that those experiences do not ring true for everyone. right? Um, I think where most of the work comes in as far as teaching other people to be more inclusive and more empathetic, you have to show them that those like generalizations are not always true. Um, and, I mean, even if they are true for those people, like it doesn't necessarily make them less than. Well, know?
0: that's a big part of it, I think. That's a big part of it that I didn't touch on because sometimes... Generalizations or stereotypes can be useful in making comments about large groups of people, but when they happen to be negative, and then you view someone else as negative because they are ha- less than because they exhibit those specific characteristics. Yeah.
1: That's just not fair.
0: It's not fair to do that.
1: Well, and that's how we get to the point where we have terms like black-on-black crime being used as an argument against movements, against police brutality, right? That is a racist kind of term that really perpetuates a narrative that African-American people are more criminal or violent, when in reality, that is that is not the case, yeah. you know?
0: Well, there's definitely... There's definitely more criminality taking place in areas of lower socioeconomic um, affluence right? because the, the opportunity is less there to, right. to, to have the same amount of means or the same um, amount of gain in a more legitimate way. And so you're just going to see that. That Most people aren't engaging in criminal activity because they are inherently criminal. Right. They're doing it because it, it offers them an opportunity to usually make money, if you want to be honest, and that's because of this crazy way that our culture values money, that they don't have the opportunity to do in a more legitimate way. And it's crazy how opportunity has been hoarded in just, honestly, in just like certain zip codes in our country. If you don't grow up in this zip code, you're fucked. If you do grow up in this zip code, you can be a pretty normal dude and become the CEO of of like a multi-billion dollar company. And you don't have to be super unique in order to do that. But I think, I mean, when you talk about something like black-on-black crime, it's awful that there are people Who happen to be black who are killing other people that happen to be black. And if it's a result of a system that disenfranchises those two individuals so much that they have to resort to crime and commit violence against somebody that looks like them, that's something that we need to try to
1: address. Yeah. And that's like the whole thing is like when people are bringing up black on black crime. They don't bring up the fact that white on white crime is even more prevalent, right? Because, yeah. I mean, population. Yeah, and... there's way more white people. Yeah. So and here we are.
0: And it's totally, it's a totally different conversation. And I think this is the main point than the fact that there's also legitimate concerns about policing that's taking place in our country right oh, now yeah. Yeah. that need the, to be talked about.
1: The entire argument, or really any argument that is um, counter to the Black Lives Matter movement, is frustrating in a way so like it is something that is very easily seen that we have police brutality and we have a very big problem of police brutality against african-american people right um and when people want to say like oh well so and so is doing this and that like it's 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 false equivalency right it's that does not detract from the fact that this is still a problem right you know there's Honestly,
0: I don't know how much of a... I'm sure there's definitely a problem with racism in policing. But I'm just concerned with the problems that are existing in policing that have nothing to do with racism. That are still a huge problem.
1: Like, why do we lock up more people than the next, like, several countries combined? Yeah. You know?
0: And then that also can be equated to, like, 50... Something like 50%. Of African American men will be incarcerated at some point in their lives. That kind of goes back to like something that seems to be implicitly biased against Black men,
1: right? About the way that we're policing. Because fifty percent of white men aren't going to be locked up during no. their lifetime, and that's how we know that it is a racial issue. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. And it's hard for us to talk about this as white dudes, but it there's is. there's definitely people talk about the 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 impact or the 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 residual effects of of slavery and then jim crow and then just powerful people who 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 created policy who happened to be racist and then that racism was reflected in the policies that they created all of that is definitely real and is happening and needs to be addressed but there's also a, another problem that I think is going on in policing that's also going on in teaching and it's also kind of going on in nursing where public services are just so undervalued that they're not being prepared to active to effectively engage with the populations that they're being asked to to work with and so you end up with just like an undervalued position that attracts an underqualified individual to be doing the
1: job and isn't it great that we want to uh, almost put like teachers and nurses and police on like these pedestals right? saying, oh, you all are doing such a service for us, but you don't need to get paid like it, yeah. right? Um, I think that that's frustrating, right? Because I mean, people like yourself who have left education, you were you were there, you were doing great work, but we couldn't keep you because the problems are, are pretty great, you know? Um, there are, there's a wealth of highly qualified people that leave professions like that because it, it's just too great of a burden to bear right and burnout's real that's it's something that we really have to understand is that when you're doing something that is difficult it is okay to feel like you're not being your best ultimate self every day you know you can't expect somebody to just be 100 percent all of the time um and I see it in myself. I have felt very hard, like I was gonna be getting burned out here pretty soon. Um, really, up until I finished my degree, and then COVID hit, where we're like, "All right, like I get a little bit of a a moment to relax." Right? That's well, kind of relax, right? I I just feel like I have had this opportunity to really reevaluate. Like, okay. Is this really what I want to be doing? Like, how can I cope with what I'm presently doing? And how can I continue to, like, improve upon my own practices? And, like, by my own practices, I mean, like, my personal practices. Like, what I'm doing as a person to make myself feel better about my, my own being. So, finding the right, like, balance is important for me. Because I know that education is what I want to do. And I know that I'm going to be around for a while. So... I need to be able to cope with everything that's thrown at me.
0: Mm-hmm. And having more people like that in teaching and in policing and in nursing and just any, anything that involves like public services. Yeah. I, one, I think it needs to go back to being viewed that way, especially in policing. Like it's a service. You're providing this service. It's not a us against them kind of thing. That happens in teaching a little bit too. Oh, it does. It yeah. definitely does. It's more of like, a, I'm here to serve this group. And that's hard to do. But also, we have to value, because there's some of the most important positions that exist. And we don't highly value them, and so we don't get, we need the best people in the classroom. We need the, the people with the highest integrity policing on the streets. Yeah, We need the people with the most compassion this the most desire to to nurture in teaching and also in nursing but that we don't get the best of those people we don't want to pay those people what they're worth yeah and so then we suffer as a culture from our lack of value of these positions
1: when these problems are so big to overcome it's kind of like well what do you even do in response so right now um a really big push in education is to do work that's in the the field where I just got my master's is like, all right, how do we make things more equitable? What can we do in order to ensure that all students are feeling valued within the curriculum? What can we do to better build relationships and communicate with one another? Um, Clearly it's, it's a, a slow rolling ball that we're kind of just gaining momentum at this point, but I do have hope that if we can learn to be more of like a, a culturally plural society, that it, it, things will kind of trickle down into the right places. Not to say that we're just going to expect it to fall there. We've got to continue doing work along the way and making adjustments to our course. Um, but actually acknowledging that there are issues is step number one. Yeah. And that can be hard,
0: and we see how hard that is. I mean, that's part of the reason why the narratives surrounding things like like, like this Black Lives Matter movement or even um, things that are revolving around policing, you have to convince people that there's even a problem before you can start talking about the actual solution for the problem. And... In the meantime, while you're trying to get everybody on board, divisiveness springs up and we're so easily, easily distracted nowadays by just diverging narratives that don't move us forward in a positive direction.
1: I think the perspective that I have as a white guy is that it's really, really hard to admit that you have uh, one privilege, and then two implicit biases. So like privilege, like sure, not everything in my life was awesome, but I also didn't have many other factors contributing to that being less awesome, Mm -hmm. right? So I also have to come to terms with the fact that I grew up in a way that really fed different conceptions about different types of people within myself, no one is immune to this. Every single person, regardless of what intersections of diversity you encompass, everyone has some sort of implicit bias, and it's just accepting that I have those. That is so hard for a lot of people. People wanna wanna say like, "Oh, well, I'm I'm not sexist. I'm not racist. I'm not homophobic," because they don't want to be perceived as being a bad person. Mm-hmm. It is okay to admit that, like, hey, I had some like weird. Feelings about X group of people because of X experiences or whatever I learned But I'm working to overcome that that is so important and a lot of people feel very attacked Whenever people point out their biases, right? Yeah,
0: and uh, you know what? I think a lot of that has to do and it's something you talked about earlier it's a lack of Experience with people who are different than you when I was younger I didn't have a lot of gay friends And then when I started to have more gay friends, most of the time they were lesbians. I didn't have a lot of gay male friends really until I met Joe and Alex. Right? I didn't have a chance to know a lot of gay guys because I didn't know a lot of them. And then the few that were around me, I think, were dealing with other things that just made them not cool people as in general. (laughs)
1: Yeah, a lot of, uh, I mean, this is, of course, a generalization, but a lot of, like, gay men can get this, like, anger behind them, right? I bet. It's because, like, you're not necessarily as feminine as people think that you're supposed to be being stereotypically gay, right? But you are also not really fitting into, like, the true masculine world because it's not accepting you yet, right? Mm -hmm. And you just kind of harbor a lot of frustration because you are trying to navigate the world that's not necessarily fair.
0: Once you have friends, what I think also sometimes happens is then people start to use that as like a shield. Like, I have these friends who are black, I must not be racist. And I have these friends who are gay, so I must not be homophobic. But, but you cannot do that, because you have to realize that your initial reaction when you meet other people who look like them or are similar to them that you don't know.
1: And those people aren't representatives of the entire group, right? Exactly. That's um that's something that is endlessly frustrating. Um on a on a different um on a different tangent there. When people approach me to be like the end all be all knowledge of all things gay, right? it's like, I'm not here to be like an educator for you about things that are gay. If you really want to know, like open up Google, my dude, like it's, yeah. it's there. <laughs> um, clear, like clearly, like I have, I have the desire to share my experiences with people. Right. And I'm not, I'm not just going to think that when people approach me with questions, that it, like it's automatically a bad thing. Right. I, I, I would like to share, but it's exhausting to be the only gay person that somebody knows, right? <laughs>
0: that, that, that's exactly kind of what I was thinking in my head, because having the realization that one person's perspective is not representative of this entire group requires you to know multiple people who are members of that group and to realize that they're actually all totally different from one another too because everybody's a person and everybody's experiences are different. And you can have one or two things in common, um, but the majority of things about you are going to be very, very different. Right. But then also at the same time, a lot of the things about you, if you were to take two people who did not share that thing in common, One person's a male and one person's a female or one person's a black man and one person's a a white woman. And those two individuals could have a lot of very similar, very shared experiences that maybe are informed by the differences that they have, but that that bring them to the same place.
1: That's where we get the whole phenomenon where it's like the people who do know one gay person when they meet the second gay person, they're like... (gasps) I know someone who would be a perfect match for you, because like they think like okay, well you all have this shared aspect of who you are, who you are. So like, all right, maybe all will get along. Mm-hmm. It's still annoying, oh, but yeah. you know, <laughs> <laughs> I bet it is annoying. It's just funny.
0: It's annoying to try to have anybody set you up. I think. Oh, that's just I don't like it. My mom used to try to set me up with. She's a hairdresser. And so she has all these clients, and they would have daughters that were around my age. And she was always trying to set me up with
1: different people. I'm like, Mom,
0: I don't even know these people at all. <laughs> Why are you trying to do this?
1: When I was 19 years old, my like, dental hygienist um was like actively cleaning my teeth while talking about how wonderful her daughter was and like how she, oh she played volleyball like she's going to go to college and play volleyball and do this and that and I'm just like oh, 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 okay like <laughs> your hands are in my mouth so what do you want me to say <laughs> but like no baby <laughs> it's not going to work for us
0: <laughs> that is hilarious and and even as i say these things and i talk about like i being able to see implicit bias in myself i'm also at the same time certain that i have biases that i'm not fully
1: aware of cuz oh, yeah. they haven't been brought to my attention yet certainly um i knew somebody who admitted to me that they felt like they were starting to be able to recognize a certain bias within themselves against muslim people and my first reaction was kind of this like guttural like Oh, like, why would you why would you say that out loud to me? But um upon further like thinking through that, I'm like, wow, this that was a moment where they made progress. Mm-hmm. They they kind of realized that like I'm generalizing this group of people. It's time for me to move forward. And so for a long time I I really judged that person. And since then, I think that she's been making progress. She's mm-hmm. been doing better. Is she still, like, a great person? I, honestly, I don't really know if she's, if she's come super far, but it's one of those things that once you learn what you're really, like, dealing with here with your implicit biases, that, like, you got to own them and you got to figure out what you can do as a person to overcome that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. And then at the same time, I can relate to people who don't, though. That's a thing. And I want to try to be patient with those people because those people are still good people. And that was kind of an experience I had recently where I was talking to someone who was a great they were a great person to talk to i really enjoyed our conversation but at the end of it i realized that a lot of our disagreements stemmed from the fact that sometimes i tend to to base some of my opinions on policy on my feelings towards really really wanting to help people who have less than me because of my interactions with so many people who have less than me and just like seeing how much they struggle And a lot of his perspective is based on wanting what's best for himself and the people around him. And I, and I can't really fault him. Yeah, I can't. It's hard to because I totally understand like wanting the best for yourself and your family and then also being a nice person
1: when you also can't fix what you don't see. You know, um, that's a lot of people don't. Interact with the public in the same ways that we did, right? So, yeah. like, uh, I think that we have the distinct um, advantage here of being able to see other people's experiences from working in education, um, and not everybody has that same background. Um, obviously, there are problems when, like, your political views have to do with limiting the rights of other people. That's clearly a problem um, and something that's happening.
0: But yeah. I worry about trying to take rights away from certain groups, but I also worry about trying to take the ability to to talk away from other groups and to say ignorant things like we have to let people continue to say dumb, stupid stuff.
1: That's the whole like cancel and call out culture thing, right? I hate it. I think it's frustrating like your fave can be problematic you just have to understand why they're problematic and they have to understand that it's time to move forward right um I, i i think that we really are getting bogged down in um a culture of being viscerally angry about things and like let me let me tell you i'm ready to be viscerally angry when someone comes at me as a person or my friends as people um i just have to understand that i'm not going to get anywhere by being that angry mm-hmm. um i'm more likely to what is the the saying like i'm going to attract more flies with honey than vinegar that's the that's the philosophy. I like. I'm actively trying to keep within myself because it's it's hard. You know, um, if somebody's attacking you as a person, like uh, it's hard to not be angry about it. And if somebody, even if they don't understand, it, yeah, and if they're attacking
0: something, maybe they're not trying to attack you as an individual, but they're attacking something in, or a group in which you identify with, and it can be hurtful. And they don't realize that they're being hurtful, um, but I think, I think at the end of the day, they have to be allowed to do that. They should definitely suffer the consequences of their their bad language. Yeah. They should definitely suffer the consequences, like socially, like with how they're received. Um, but they should be allowed to say it because you might find yourself in a situation where this this person who's saying this ignorant thing is in a place where they're ready to move forward and if they're immediately shut down and immediately canceled you might have been you might be burning a bridge to where you can help this person cross this bridge and then now they're better informed and they're more capable of interacting with the world in a positive way and that's a good thing and we want that
1: that's like the the friend who came at me with her realization of some sort of bias i I mean i wonder I wonder where she is on that subject now because I don't think that I'm comfortable with being like, hey, by the way. yeah. Um, and I also think that I shut down that conversation mm-hmm. um, when it was something that could have been opened up further. And maybe she's making progress, perhaps not. But um, I could have been there to, to be able to help her along the way. Hopefully she'll find a
0: Muslim friend. A, that right. then she could have a conversation with. Because I clearly that. can't speak yeah. to
1: other people's experiences, mm-hmm. but I, I really hope that that she's making
0: progress. Yeah, I had a conversation with my friend Daryl recently on the podcast, and he talked to me about an experience that he has that I've never experienced really, where he has to try to talk to people who are in their behavior, maybe intentionally, but but maybe also unintentionally offending him. And then he has to go out of his way to not offend them in order to talk to them about the situation. That seems
1: really, really challenging. Oh, seriously, yeah. that's um, I mean, within my first or second year of teaching, I I've, I've had to have a sit-down conversation between myself and a child and an assistant principal to really hash out, like, okay student why do you have a problem with being in a classroom with a gay educator is this truly something about the person or like what's going on um and the entire time i'm sitting there like just grinning through my teeth like thinking like this is the most annoying conversation i've ever had in my life this is not something i'm trying to deal with but at the same time, I'm trying to be accommodating to this child so that like, we can kind of overcome whatever issue it is that they're having uh, in order to you know, maintain our educator-student relationship. Mm-hmm. And um, having to point out all of these little things that they're no longer allowed to do or say about me mm-hmm. um, while also still trying to not offend them and make sure that they are really, truly seeing my point of view right Mm -hmm. yeah that sucks
0: but that's still important you know that 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 discomfort like it's unfortunate that you have to experience it but being willing to experience it is how how people how how it's the burden that you bear in the process of helping this person become a more informed
1: person, you know well at the end of that experience um we ended up having one of the most unlikely teacher-student great relationships. Oh, that's Where people were cool. like, why does he like you that much? He doesn't like anybody that much. Mm-hmm. Just, I don't know. I guess I just met him halfway, and we learned how to respect one another. That's so, rad. Yeah.
0: That's super cool. It was very cool. So what do you feel like next for you? You just got your master's degree, teacher's leadership. You better to go be a teacher leader?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I'm already trying to do that. I'm trying to step up. Um, you were doing that while... We haven't really
0: talked about how we know each other, but oh, yeah. we, we taught together at Dawson and you were already kind of a leader. When I think about my time there, that's how I view you. You were regularly leading PDs and you just engage with people in a really positive way and like a really constructive way that I think a lot of people appreciate.
1: That's a really excellent compliment. I, I appreciate that. Um... I I just want to continue to help share, like, I mean, I have a passion for education. I feel like I'm um, very lucky to have found a, a profession that I like and appreciate. Um, and so I just want to continue to step up to to make positive impacts within my own school building and hopefully later on down the road, maybe do some more. Um, I'll probably take a little little break before I go back to get another degree, but... It's I feel like a goal it has been to get into administration or work for a school board to really make some systemic like progress within the environment in which I'm working
0: mm-hmm. that is such a daunting thing. Do you feel sometimes overwhelmed by like the scale of that goal?
1: It's like hmm. I've always been one for drama, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I, I love the the whole idea of like, yes, I'm gonna get in there and and make some progress, like, yeah. Do some good things, and um, not that I'm like asking to have like a, a freedom writer's style book written about me, kind mm-hmm. of deal, but like, I wanna I wanna do something that's gonna be a lasting impact. You know, um, that's that's always been my idea here is like. Not like an immortality kind of thing.
0: I think that's a part of all humans. I don't think you should feel ashamed of wanting to feel like you leave something behind. Yeah. I think that's a part of all
1: humans. When it can be a small thing. It can, it can be any little thing. I just want to be able to like leave what I'm working with better than when I'm, I
0: found it. Yeah. You know? I can relate to that in a real strong way and respect that. I respect that a whole lot. Yeah,
1: And you know, maybe if they put my name on a park bench, cool. Dope.
0: (laughs) Like, hang your picture up on a plaque on the wall at Doss High School. I'm down. (laughs) Dude, so we're at an hour and 44 minutes of an awesome fucking podcast. I can't wait to edit this, because I'm not going to (laughs) have (laughs) to. Like, we've got an hour 45 here, and I bet you there's easily an hour 40 that's That's usable. Like, almost all of it's usable.
1: That's, um, well, so... I've been interviewed for like news things here and there before and every time I do it I'm like yes I'm confident I know exactly what I'm gonna say and then like they put the camera on me and I'm like I'm <laughs> yes sure um, but I think that like knowing that this isn't gonna be like a live ordeal has definitely like made the nerves not be there
0: that's awesome I worry sometimes because sometimes people will come in here and the nerves are high and it's obvious from the very beginning, yeah, yeah, like they'll be a little shaky or their voice will be shaky or they won't they won't be comfortable on the couch. I can tell by just by the way they're sitting that they're like uncomfortable, and I'll encourage them like get comfortable, or if like this is uncomfortable, tell me so I can fix yeah, it so like I can chill. make it more comfortable <laughs> for other people um, but also some people aren't r- ready to communicate their and articulate their ideas in a way that is effective um, and in a way that is truly representative of what they actually think. Yeah. Okay. And that just kind of goes back down important languages. But when you don't have those skills, you really worry about how you're going to be perceived.
1: I've always just been this like really reflective person. I like to think about what my actions have like, have been in the past and, like, where I'm going to move forward and what I'm going to do, sometimes that contributes to a lot of anxiety. Thinking about the weird thing I said in seventh grade, like, in the middle of a Wendy's parking lot. (laughs) Might have been a little too specific there. It still haunts me. (laughs) But just being reflective is something that's so important. So I think that that like aspect of myself allows me to really just talk about the things around me and like what I believe in and what I how how I operate
0: have you always been that way very open and just very able to talk or has that been something you've grown into
1: um I think it's something I probably grew into I I, I feel like I was an open like little kid like I was the I was the kid that would like talk to adults at, at the like school function kind of do like oh yeah this like the teacher's assistant from across the hallway hello how are you today <laughs> but um I, I don't know i i feel like as i've grown up being forced to be comfortable with who i am i've like i've still got work to do you know like I'm i'm not saying i'm the most comfortable in my own skin like that's clearly not the case but I think that um, I am open with sharing my experiences, then being an educator, really wanting to share like a little bit of like humanity with with kids. Like, let that be an imprint on my work. Um, I don't know. I think that that just kind of lends itself to an openness. That's great. That's awesome.
0: I don't know. I don't want to quit.
1: It's fun. I it like feels like this.
0: a natural place. It It is really fun to do. Um, you don't get the chance. You don't realize how, how seldomly you get the chance to sit across from another person and look them in the face and just yeah.
1: talk to them for a little
0: bit of time. It never really ever happens.
1: I mean, I remember you telling me the, um, the concept of this podcast, I'm sitting in my own classroom over lunch. Um, and I was like, okay, I like, I can see how that works. That's interesting. Um, I love the way it's manifested. Like it's, it's more than what I expected it to be.
0: Well, it's not me either. I don't know. The only thing that I know how to do, because the the reason I asked you, that was kind of a loaded question. The reason I asked you that question is because me, I personally, my entire life have had to try not to talk too much about how I'm feeling. It, it occurred to me At one point that I was making other people around me uncomfortable by talking too much about what I was experiencing and how I was how I was feeling about it and expecting them to talk back to me in the same way. So this is a this is perfect for me. And my main challenge when I'm sitting here is shutting up (laughs) and listening.
1: (laughs) That's the hardest part. You and I both have that same problem. (laughs) We like to talk a lot. I,
0: I really enjoy talking. It's fun for me. And. Also, like a big part of myself as a person, kind of similarly to you, is being introspective and trying to figure out like this is not working. Like, yeah. I'm awkward. Lots of people don't like me.
1: I do think though <laughs> that like that feeling is mostly within our own heads. You think like, so, I think it's a lot better than what we really think it is. Maybe it
0: is. You can spiral in there. Yeah? <laughs> you can. You can, especially when you're by yourself. This the most important part for me is to get another person's perspective. Because I can see my point of view, but I don't necessarily know what another person is thinking. And I want to know whether or not I'm wrong. Yeah. I, I want to know whether or not I'm wrong. And and then once I have like all point of views, I'll decide what I think. But at least the, at that point, I'll be able to tell you
1: why I think that. Yeah. Um, uh, like i uh, uh, if it's comforting i don't think that you're ever going to be wrong unless you're saying no these people aren't as good as i am because of who they are as what i perceive as the stereotype of them
0: well i'm wrong <laughs> i'm wrong all the time
1: <laughs> about, about lots of stuff i mean like if it's facts you know <laughs> yeah well my wife will
0: tell you right now like i'm wrong about a, a large amount of things often but it's okay to be wrong that's another thing that i think it comes with being adult
1: is realizing that that's like why kids are afraid to raise their hand in class because they don't want to be wrong. It's like, no, just be wrong so I can help everyone understand how to get to the right part. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like be the, be the one who's like a quote unquote sacrificial lamb. Like nobody's going to think you're dumb. Like I can't even, I can't even think of one example of somebody raising their hand in a class and saying something wrong is, uh, you know, from my educational experiences, like it doesn't stick with people. Just no. don't be afraid to be wrong. Yeah. But be willing to accept the right answer. Yes. Yes.
0: You know, that's that's a that's a great lesson for all people. So I, I don't know. It's it seems like it's inevitable. I could talk to you all day, but it seems like this <laughs> is the right place to end this. Gotta wrap it up. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been a blast. It really has. I would very much like to incorporate you and your perspective in other podcasts that I do in the future. So if you'd be willing to do this again, maybe in a group setting or something Certainly. like that, hell yeah. That great. Hans, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mitch. All right, brother. I love you. Love you, too. Bye. Bye.
1: That's fun. <laughs>
0: Alright guys, there it is. Another podcast in the books. Hans was the best. Um, his point of view is so well formed and so very thoughtful. Uh, he's just a person whom I love to talk to and I hope you guys appreciated our conversation because I think it was a great one. Guys, once again, real fast, if you're listening on Apple Podcast or Google Podcasts, take a quick break to give us a rating Five stars if you don't mind. Write as a quick review. Let people out there know that you love what's going on here at Just Friends and they might like it too. Give them a reason to check it out. And while you're at it, if you can think of somebody who might appreciate this episode, someone who knows Hans or maybe someone who just might appreciate Hans's point of view, share the podcast with them. It's really easy now. Just send them the URL for the website, justfriendspod.com. It's very simple, justfriendspod.com. It'll take you right to our website. You can learn anything you want to learn about the podcast. You can listen to the most recent episodes. You can listen to all the other episodes as well. You can buy merch, which is awesome. It's the really great one-stop shop for everything, just friends. And it's a brand new website. I'm super proud of it. I hope you guys can appreciate it as well. A lot of work and a lot of love went into making it look pretty and making it functional. And it never would have happened without the support of six stunning, beautiful, amazing individuals who support my Patreon page. Tim Higdon, Ryan Ray, Emily Brown, Emily Berry, David Vandelberg, and Ben Ryzen. You guys are the real MVPs. You guys make this happen. And those of you listening, if you would like to see Just Friends continue to grow, if you'd like to see a video aspect come into the mix, guys, it happens because of you and your support. So go over to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash MitchMakesPodcasts and consider becoming a Patreon patron. It's the best way to show your support, and it really does go a long way to helping Just Friends be sustainable, but also continue to grow and to create more opportunities for great conversation. So check it out, patreon.com forward slash Mitch Makes Podcasts. For everybody else out there who's listening, I love you all. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Until next week, stay safe, be kind to one another. I love you all. Bye.